All right. We are in the middle of a three-part sermon series that we're doing on grief. And I chose a three-part for this as we head into Lent um, because it's based on a metaphor that was offered by Rabbi Ann Brenner, who wrote a lovely book on mourning called Mourning and Mitzvah. Uh, mitzvah just means doing a good deed. So she talks about like how mourning is doing a good deed for ourselves. So she offers this picture that I found helpful. And so the, the metaphor that she uses is based on the belief of Jewish mystics that the creation of the universe happened in three parts. Contraction, the breaking of vessels, and then healing. All right, so last week we did contraction. And in that phase, um, it's said that divine light and divine energy came out and collided so forcefully that the jolt of that collision caused a deep darkness to settle over the universe. And so that's a picture of the initial shock of a loss, especially if you had a loss that was sudden. And then it's said that the vessels out of which that energy and light broke free, that those um, shattered and those uh, pieces are now scattered throughout the darkness in chaotic disarray and that that represents how our emotions are often in a very chaotic state in the weeks, in the months, and even the years following a loss. If you think about kind of groping around in the dark and then accidentally hitting something, you're like, ow, that hurts. That's kind of the picture that's happening there. And then in the healing phase, which we'll talk about next week, little holy sparks of light start to emerge in the darkness and they start to put the universe back together again, representing how we are hopefully able to integrate our grief into our stories and start to heal. So we're looking at this chaotic disarray of broken vessels this week, our emotions. And so after a loss, it's really important for our healing to get to a place where we're able to feel the feelings. Right? However that looks, and no matter how unpleasant that is. We talked a little last week about how everyone's grief journey is as unique as our fingerprints, right? and how our emotional responses to loss won't be the same as other people's. In fact, our emotional response to loss might even be different than what we expect it to be, maybe even based on past experiences, and that that's okay, that feelings are complicated, they are nonlinear. We talked about it's not like a process that you just move through. Many feelings can exist all at the same time. I've especially just anecdotally found that people who lose someone, maybe a parent or a sibling, um, who was maybe a little unkind or even abusive to them in their life, have been really surprised at just how muddled their grief feels because of the extra layers of complexity that exist within that relationship. So the go-to story in the Bible for talking about complicated grief is Job, for good reason, right? He loses almost everything. He loses his family, he loses his home, he loses his livelihood, his health. So in Job 7:11, he says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul and complain he does. If you know that book, chapter after chapter after chapter of Job railing at God, um, railing at his friends who were no help and kind of deserve it. Neither their theology nor their empathy were up to the task. And he tears his garments and he covers himself with ashes head to toe. Now, overall, that text is asking big questions about the nature of God and what it means to be human. But I think on its most practical level, Job just reflects all of the emotional landscape of grief. Right, that sometimes we just need to wail. Sometimes we need to vent and rant. Um, sometimes we need to do something physical to express our pain, right? Like tear a piece 
of, of clothing, tear a piece of cloth. I now think, like, sometimes I think people get tattoos um, to kind of mark that grief, maybe plant a tree. There's another story that's found in the book of First Samuel about a woman called Hannah, and she's grieving, and so she's praying and she's crying at the main temple in Jerusalem, and she must look like an absolute mess. One of the priests comes up to her and tells her to, please stop drinking alcohol and quiet down already. To which she tells him, no, I'm not drunk, I'm deeply troubled, and I'm pouring out my heart to God. So Anne Brenner points out that Hannah asserted her right to express her feelings without being judged for her appearance or her words. Right? And we talked a little bit last week about the importance of holding these non-judgmental spaces for people who are grieving. And Hannah insisted on this. Right? And she did it to somebody who had more power than, and status in that, in that space there. Right? She said, I have a right to my feelings. And I just think, yes, you do, Hannah. Yes, you do. Every emotion experienced during grief is legitimate. That's a natural response to the really profound changes that come with loss. And we know sadness and anger are common. I would say that if we're talking about the death of a loved one and that death was a long time coming, for that could be for a variety of reasons. But it's worth naming that some people feel a sense of relief mixed in and then often feel a little bit guilty about having that feeling of relief. And that's really normal. I've seen that in my family. I've seen it as people have been caretakers for parents and grandparents. Sometimes fear is mixed in into that mix. It's fear about the future, fear about money, and then feeling guilty about, oh, why am I having to think about something so banal as money, something practical like that? But it is important, right? Like this sort of caring for ourselves after a loss, but people can have all kinds of mixed feelings about that. There can be feelings of um, worry about like what the family dynamics going forward might be like, especially if it's like a person who is sort of a, a glue of the family, maybe one of the peacemakers of the family. It's, well, what are family gatherings going to feel like now? Um, you might have sadness that someone might not have been able to be the person that you needed them to be. Right? Like, man, I loved my dad, but he did not show up for me in ways that I should be able to expect a dad to show up. Right? And those are complicated feelings. The whole landscape of emotion is just sort of laid bare in grief, and it is all, um, it is all part of it. Sometimes when people die, we have a tendency to eulogize them. And what I mean by that is um, we only speak well of them, and we don't recognize any flaws. And sometimes there are maybe particular people in a family system who sort of police that. Um, so it might be somebody says something like, man, something about my mom just really drove me nuts. But somebody immediately interjects and says, yeah, yeah, but she was a good mom. She was a good person. You know, and they sort of don't allow that feeling to exist. And I think it can be really hard to name all of the feelings that are associated with the death of a loved one if you or someone close to you is sort of idealizing the person who died. So if you have a family with that kind of dynamic, it can be helpful to give yourself permission to have the feelings and to find safe others who give you that safe, same permission. So a few years back, my uncle John died. He wasn't actually my uncle, right? He was my dad's first cousin, so he was my dad's age. We call him uncle. And so when he passed away, his wife and kids asked if I would do the eulogy, which I did. And the thing that I found most moving and that kind of stuck out to me as someone who's done several funerals um, was just how easily the people who knew him best were able to just really kind of share honestly about his whole self, 
You know, they were like, things that are true, they were like, he was kind, he was good to his family, he was good in, you know, he was like a community stalwart. But I remember my cousin Sarah getting up and being like, man, was he a grouchy old man. He was just stubborn and he could be like really curt. She's like, but you know what? I loved him in spite of those things. Those were just part of him. And I think, you know, the guy umped for little league games in his spare time for decades. And I thought, God, I'd be grouchy too if I had to navigate angry little league parents as, uh, as the ump. But accepting the messy mix of a person is part of being able to make peace with their parting. Too often, too, we judge ourselves for experiencing moments of joy amidst the pain. Now, grieving well doesn't mean that joy is forbidden. When you're grieving, oftentimes you're trying to be able to function socially. Maybe you're trying to get back to work, you're around the water cooler, because we've got to be around people because we need connection. And you might find yourself smiling or laughing, and then somebody remarks to you, you know, it's really good to see you laughing again. And sometimes that can bring on kind of a guilt response or feeling sad that you're letting yourself feel some happiness. It's just no laughter and moments of happiness can coexist with sadness and it doesn't negate the sadness. Grief triggers a stress response in our bodies. And so grieving well um, involves practicing a lot of self-compassion in that time. So when we're stressed, our brains release adrenaline and cortisol, those help us survive. In the short term, that like cascade of chemicals that's released is really helpful for us. But when those chemicals are released in an ongoing way, as they are during like a really significant and ongoing period of grief, it can affect our overall health, right? From fatigue to irritability to heart problems to any myriad of things. And so one of the best ways to help ourselves when we're grieving is to focus on very basic self-care, just knowing that there's not a whole lot of energy to do more than that. And it sounds a little simple, and I thought it sounds almost trite to say out loud, but it is really amazing how the basics can sometimes just go out the door when we're mourning, right? Eating a well-balanced diet, even if you don't feel like eating. Sleep is often interrupted and fitful, and so maybe exploring options for getting better sleep if needed. Getting a little exercise. Um, you know, when Nancy passed away, I remember one of my first thoughts about Ken was like, oh God, he's not going to eat. And he didn't. If you knew him, then he lost so much weight. And so I think it became part of his practice to just like eat for survival, right? You just got to do it when you don't feel like it. The thing about anxiety and stress is that they burn energy, right? If you have a major loss, even getting one thing done can sometimes feel like a really major accomplishment. Um, you know, if you've lost a spouse or maybe if you've lost your last surviving parent, there might be like a lot to do after a death. Bank accounts to close or to remove names from, um, homes to empty and sell. I know a couple of you here have had to go through that this year, and that's a lot of energy and a lot of work. Companies to notify, so much paperwork. And so for some people, checking things off of a list can actually be a little bit energizing. Um, for others, it is really overwhelming and exhausting. And so we have to give each other and ourselves a lot of grace in that. I think sometimes it can be hard when siblings have opposite responses to grief, right? And that can be really hard. So there are some helpful coping mechanisms for this level of stress, and then there's less helpful ones. So um, I asked my wife last spring to preach. Um, my wife, Rachel, is a therapist. She's only preached like twice in 10 years, but I thought we were doing some sermon series where it made sense for us to talk about resilience. And um, she said something about resilience that stuck with me. 
She said it means not making things worse for ourselves during hard times. Right? Resilience means not making things worse for ourselves during hard times. So here's a little story about my dad. And I called my mom and I said, can I tell the story? She's like, oh yeah, that's fine. She might even be online this morning. Um, my dad's mom, my grandma Swan, Margie, um, she died when I was 15. I really loved her. She had curly red hair till the day she died. When she passed, he was understandably upset. I was raised by a man who was not afraid of his emotions, but he did something in response to his grief that I would say was probably not resilient. So my dad had been a CPA, but he hated accounting. It was a really bad fit for his personality. I mean, he hated it. Um, so when his mom died, I mean, I think he was feeling really overwhelmed by the grief, and he just thought, you know what? I'm also feeling really overwhelmed by my job, so I'm just gonna cut off one of these things here. So he left his CPA firm without talking it over with my mom first. My mom at that point was a stay-at-home mom, so there was not a second income. Surprise. Um, so it was a moment that she would say was one of the harder ones in their marriage, but she told me, just make sure you let them know, like, we loved each other, we love each other very much, and they do. There's a lot of love there. Um, but yeah, I think she kind of wanted to kill him a little bit. <laughs> he had inherited a tiny bit of money. He quickly went through that. Then he spent the next few years just kind of dabbling in different businesses. Um, the most memorable one was Bird Be Gone, which I've probably talked about. It's those little spikes that you see on top of like airports and things that like keep pigeons off. He sold that for a little while. I don't know. He did this and that. He made ends meet by like doing the books for a friend's company. I have a memory that he took out a second mortgage. My mom couldn't remember, but I was just asking her and she was like, you know, it put a lot of stress on the family because you were headed to college and your sister Mindy, who's a year behind me, was headed to college. And so I was like, well, do you think that made things worse in terms of your grieving process? And she's like, definitely. It definitely, definitely did. Um, I should note also last week I mentioned my dad had early onset dementia. It's very possible that his decision-making abilities were on the fritz at that time. My mom thinks that they were. But regardless, I thought it still makes a good case in point. Making big decisions like quitting your job, especially without telling your spouse or partner, goes in that category, I think, of like unhelpful coping mechanisms. I say my dad kind of lost his mind a little bit there. So they say not to make major decisions in the first year after a significant loss. And I think a question that we can ask ourselves when we're grieving is, could what I'm doing make things harder for me and those I love? Could this make things worse? And usually in the moment, you're not even thinking like that. You're just like, things feel so bad right now. I just want to make the bad thing like feel less bad. But like stepping back and be like, as bad as things are, do I really need them to be worse? Other things to be aware of that can make life harder during grief include isolating and substance abuse. A little substance use is pretty normal. Um, I would say unless you're in recovery, which I've got a family member who is, in which case stay far away and utilize all of your support systems. A lot of people, they use, um, you know, they, we have some go-to things. Um, I would just say if you're particularly vulnerable to substance abuse, though, when you're grieving, and so it's something to be aware of, right? If you get three or four months in and you're like, man, I've been drinking every day, um, it might be something that you want to take a step back from because it's something that we're using to like ease pain or help us numb out, but it's actually probably something that will make things more difficult. And it's probably keeping us from actually accessing the really hard emotions that we need in order to heal. Um, isolation is something that we're also vulnerable to in a time of grief. 
right? We, we need people. We need community. We need connection to help us thrive and to move forward. And it can be really hard because you might feel like you're too much of a mess for anybody to be around. Or maybe you just feel like, God, I'm too sad. I don't really want to do anything. I just want to sit and like watch TV. Um, but that's why we have to cultivate some friendships and communities where people can hold space for the enormity of our losses without putting any expectations on us, right? Just come over in your PJ pants and, you know, watch Frasier reruns with us or whatever. I think our faith really emphasizes the importance of community and connection and mutual support. You know, individual experiences of suffering are acknowledged in our tradition and in our stories, but the overall narrative really underscores the significance of sharing our burdens with others, finding solace in community bonds. And it's really important for our mental health to resist isolating in these hard times. I read from Ecclesiastes 4. It says, two are better than one. They have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. Pity anyone who falls and doesn't have anyone to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So that passage is often used at wedding ceremonies, which is fine, but marriage isn't actually the context of it. Um, it's just emphasizing the practical and emotional support that comes from friendships and relationships and reinforces the idea that connecting with others during these difficult times is what helps provide strength and resilience for us. Um, I think one of the best depictions of shared grief that I've seen like on a TV show is a show called Reservation Dogs. I don't know if any of you guys saw that. Some of you, it's on Hulu. Um, it's a show about a bunch of indigenous teens that are growing up on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma. And it's about how the loss of one of their friends affects them over three seasons. Um, it really is insightful about how they heal through community as well as there's some really... Um, kind of precious spirituality woven into that. So I would say if you haven't seen that, I would, that's one that I would recommend. So I just want to wrap us up this morning by remind us by what might seem like a hokey story. Um, some of you are probably familiar with the footprints story. I almost feel embarrassed mentioning it. It's like those things, it's like in a Christian bookstore 20 years ago. I don't know if it still is. The story, there's two people walking. Somebody's walking alongside Jesus on a beach right? So there's two footprints in the sand. Hard times come. The person walking with Jesus looks back. They can only see. Hey, how about now? Hey, there we go. Sorry about that. I had a little soundboard unplugged, people on Zoom. Um, I was just wrapping up with the really hokey story, right? The person, I'm like, oh, maybe it's just as well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh, Jesus was carrying them through that hard time, and I feel like a cheesy church lady, but I do think it's worth naming. People often feel like God has like abandoned them in times of grief or stress or despair, or like God's punishing them. But sometimes I think when we get through the grief and we look back, we realize that God was actually there just kind of crying with us and sharing that pain. And I will just, let's just end it there. I had a little bit more, but we'll just leave it there. You know, we usually do here um, a minute or two of just guided meditation or silence. And so I thought we would just do a little silence today to let the Spirit, uh, make room for the Spirit to do whatever is moving in your hearts. People make noise. I'll let you know when the time is up.
Creator, we thank you that you're the kind of God who gives us permission to just be and to have all of the feelings and um, that you're just there as we're able to explore those, even the most uncomfortable ones. We ask that you would help us to be a community um, who's able to make space for each other in times of grief, where we can acknowledge the enormity of one another's losses, and we can also just be a really non-judgmental space for wherever we're at um, in that process. We know that you know and understand the grief process, that becoming human, you also went through that, and so we thank you for your solidarity um, in our just human state, because grief is hard. We ask that your spirit um, would be upon us in this coming week. We thank you for who you are. Amen.